Hello, Roger Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the latest edition of Hub Headlines, featuring our best commentary and analysis published today, Thursday, February 8th. Our first commentary is from Trevor Tome, who is a professor of economics and Hub contributor. He is writing today on Canada betting big on America. Trade talks between the United Kingdom and Canada fell apart late last month. The UK raised concerns with Canada's new 245% tax levied on British cheese, effective January 1st this year, while Canada wanted changes to UK health rules to allow for hormone-treated beef. Whatever one thinks about the merits of either country's position, the breakdown was disappointing and is hopefully soon corrected. Canada has long been a small, open economy. Our trade relationships are among the most important economic assets we have. Trade plays a crucial role in our economy, especially for the agriculture and resource sectors, which are inherently export-oriented, and for manufacturing, which is deeply integrated with global supply chains. Imports are no less important. From computers to clothing, suppliers elsewhere provide much of what we need. And the importance of trade has only grown. Trade was equivalent to between 30% and 40% of our economy for a century after Confederation, with a brief spike during the First World War. But in recent decades, trade volumes took off, reaching a high of more than three-quarters of our economy by 2000 before declining slightly to settle in at the roughly two-thirds we have today. Agreements with the United States, various treaties under the WTO, the rise of China, the fall of the Soviet Union, and new trade deals with Europe through CETA and Pacific countries through the TPP all played a part. But despite this extensive liberalization, Canada's trade is large with one partner, the U.S. Roughly 80% of all our exports go to the U.S. That's a very risky strategy, especially given how lopsided the relationship is. From our perspective, we have no greater partner. From theirs, it's an entirely different story. Consider this. Total trade between Canada and the U.S. represents a significant portion of economic activity for every single province, but is barely more than a blip for most U.S. states. Trade with the U.S. is 46% of Alberta's economy, 43% of Manitoba's, 39% of Ontario's, and more than 62% of New Brunswick's. But look at Michigan's economy. At the high end, is less than 11% dependent on trade with Canada. Among the most populous states, it barely registered, accounting for merely 1% of California's GDP, 2% of New York's, 0.6% of Florida's, and 2.5% of Texas. Overall, Canada-U.S. trade is roughly 3% of the U.S. economy. For Canada, it's roughly one-third. This matters for the political and policy calculus that leaders south of the border make. There are far fewer consequences for businesses and consumers down there from any disruption, so the incentive to ensure free trade continues is far less. We saw significant risks to the trading relationship under the former U.S. president, for example, and protectionist inclinations have continued, even grown, under the current one. Whoever wins this year's election, Canada faces trade risks that few other countries do. Indeed, 
Canadian exports are more concentrated than almost any other country on Earth. Among countries with populations above 10 million, only Haiti and South Sudan have more concentrated exports than Canada or Mexico. Among those with 15 million or more, no one else comes close. Of course, much of this is entirely natural. Countries that are close tend to trade more, and we trade more with large countries than with small ones. From Canada's perspective, the U.S. is both. Two in three Canadians live within 100 kilometers of the border, for example, and their economy is roughly 10 times ours. Explaining the pattern is easy, managing the risk is hard. So for this reason alone, Canada should hedge its bets and more aggressively pursue trading arrangements with others. Instead of continuing to resist opening our highly protected and low productivity sectors, like dairy, we should embrace as many markets as possible. If our leaders have confidence in Canadian producers, easier trade should be nothing to fear. As an added bonus, easing trade restrictions will lower prices for Canadian families. We currently maintain an average tariff of nearly 15% on agricultural imports, rising to over 243% for dairy imports. We even levy a 16.5% tax on imported clothing, on average, with significant costs for Canadian families. I estimate taxes on imports cost the average Canadian family approximately $230 per year, and for one in 10 families, the costs are more than $500 per year. Levying new taxes on imports from a friend and ally like the UK moves us entirely in the wrong direction. With so much of our prosperity tied to the US and with so much uncertainty there, eliminating trade barriers with others can't come soon enough. That was a commentary by Trevor Tome in today's Hub. You can find the full text of the article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. He is writing today on Canada's housing-based inequality. Eric Lombardi's recent essay for The Hub on how Canada's housing crisis risks transforming the country into a neo-feudal society certainly touched a nerve. It reflects a growing and compelling view that one might describe as the housing theory of everything, in which high housing prices have come to hold explanatory powers over various economic, social, and even psychological trends in modern Canada. His basic thesis, the inability of many young Canadians to enter the housing market without familial financial support is creating a new source of social bifurcation, is straightforward and supported by evidence. Recent polls in British Columbia and Ontario, for instance, have found that 40% of first-time home buyers in the two provinces have depended on financial support from their families. These figures are consistent with New Statistics Canada research that shows that the home ownership rate for millennials and members of Generation Z, whose parents themselves are homeowners, is more than double those whose parents are not. Housing wealth, in other words, has increasingly come to beget more housing wealth. The bigger point, housing-based inequality, is an interpretive lens for understanding broader trends, including the public's general sense of malaise, is one that the Trudeau government has quite possibly come to understand too late for its own political survival. 
and one that Canadian policymakers more generally have failed to understand to the detriment of current and future generations. One of the indirect yet powerful ways in which these housing affordability challenges have manifested themselves is in the form of delayed family formation and declining fertility rates. The interrelationship between housing prices and family planning is somewhat intuitive. Housing costs, particularly in high-cost localities, are a major household expenditure and therefore necessarily influence our short- and long-term expectations, including when to start a family and how many children that families ultimately ought to have. This interplay between housing and family planning is having perverse effects in Canada. Unlike most peer jurisdictions, babies in Canada have become, in the words of demographer Lyman Stone, a luxury good. His research finds that higher-income Canadian families tend to have higher desired and actual fertility rates. As he put it in a 2023 episode of Hub Dialogues, Canada's a place where fertility is uniquely, positively correlated with income, which is nerd-speak for Canada's a place where family is a sign of wealth and social class. If you're rich, you can buy the right to have kids. Housing is a big part of this story especially as it has become a leading indicator of income and wealth in Canadian society. Previous analysis for The Hub by Steve Lafleur, for instance, has shown that a household must now be among the top 10% of household income to even qualify for a mortgage in the City of Toronto. Similarly, research by TD Economics has found that wealth inequality in Canada is, by and large, a function of the differing outcomes between homeowners and non-homeowners, including both intra- and intergenerationally. It's not a complete coincidence, therefore, that Lombardi's essay was published the same week as new data from Statistics Canada that the country's fertility rate hit an all-time low in 2022. At 1.33 children per woman, the country is not only 0.6 percentage points below the replacement rate, but its year-over-year -year drop was among the largest in high-income countries and Canada's own history. The same analysis found that the average age of first-time mothers has increased from 27.6 years in 1976 to 31.6 years in 2022. Although these developments are multi-causal, it's notable that Canadian women tell pollsters that there's a gap between their desired and actual fertility rates they'd actually prefer to have a number of children approximating the replacement rate, but there are different impediments standing in their way, including high housing costs. Even if one accepts that Lombardi's claims about neo-feudalism may seem a bit provocative, his characterization of Canada's socio-economic context, in which homeownership and child-rearing are increasingly expressions of hereditary wealth, clearly resonates with a lot of young people including members of the Hub's staff, who are seeing both become the purview of their wealthier and more advantaged peers. Setting aside the economic and social costs of high housing prices and their effects on fertility rates for a minute, there's something conceptually incompatible with the egalitarian promise of Canadian society for the haves to be able to own homes and have children and the have-nots to have neither. These basic milestones of what has traditionally been understood as the good life shouldn't be treated as luxury goods, a society in which they are, in which the aspirations to own a home or become a parent 
are understood as signs of wealth or social class can persuasively be defined as neo-feudal. As for the costs themselves, they can never be fully measurable. A full accounting of the opportunity costs of the births and lives that never come into being, or the social costs of growing stratification, will be greater than we can ever understand. That was a commentary by Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large, published in today's Hub. You can find the full text of the article on our website, thehub.ca. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granovsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I am Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.